Hello, society, and thank you for joining The Social Solution with Maya Brown, where we will discuss recent social injustices and relate them to the current news. If you have a passion for social justice and want to stay informed society, then this is the podcast for you. Remember that if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Mr. President, I rise today to discuss legislation I introduced to eliminate the Electoral College and ensure that the candidate who wins the most votes will be elected president. The presidency is the only office in America where the candidate who wins the most votes can still lose the election. That was Senator Barbara Boxer from California speaking on the Senate floor back in 2016 in support of abolishing the Electoral College. So why not do the simple thing and the right thing and the just thing and make sure that the winner of the popular vote is sworn in as our president? In 2016, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by a margin of 3 million votes. So how did Donald Trump who lost the popular vote, become the president of the United States? The answer is one of the most confusing and controversial parts of the nation's political system. That was yet again front and center in this year's election, the Electoral College. The Electoral College is not only a hallmark of American elections, it is also a topic of debate among its citizens. For the second time since 2000, in 2016, the president was chosen not just by a minority of voters, but also by a system that was created as a compromise with slave-owning southern states, and which honestly still dilutes the influence of minority voters. I speak with Samuel Jens, a political science professor of the presidency and the American political system at Stony Brook University, to find out the origins, mechanics, and evolution of the Electoral College, and even some of the ideas that have been proposed for reform. So let's start with the history behind the Electoral College. So going back to the origins of the Electoral College, in the summer of 1787, delegates considered several options, including selection by legislature and popular election, and ended up with the creation of the Electoral College as a compromise. So there was a big, uh, comp ultimately the Electoral College was a compromise, and it was between large states and small states, and there was a disagreement over whether the president would be chosen by the state legislatures at the time in the 13 colonies, now states, or if it would be chosen by popular election. And ultimately what the framers of the constitution decided on was a compromise between the two large states and the small states in which there'd be an indirect election of the president, in which states people would vote for electors who were members of the, what is now was called the electoral college, and those electors would then vote for president. And at first, it was whoever received the most votes of the electors would be a nominate, would be uh, sworn in as president, and the person who received the second most votes would be sworn in as vice president. The framers didn't go with the popular vote because they were concerned with the uneven distribution of population among the states and the counting of slaves for purposes of presidential election. So really, the, the, the framers didn't want 
complete, uh, I guess, popular vote for president. So ultimately, they wanted the link between the president and the public to be indirect. And that's what the Electoral College does. It effectively makes it so that you're not voting directly for the president, you're voting for electors who in turn will then go vote for president and vice president. And ultimately, it was a compromise between large states and small states. The small states didn't want a popular election because they would have much less say than some of the larger states at the time. And what the compromise the founding fathers came up with was quite innovative because there, at the time, had been no precedent for anything like the Electoral College and democracy. The mechanics of the Electoral College mean that the electoral votes is what elects a president, not the popular vote. The number of representatives plus the number of senators equals the state's Electoral College votes, which is the one that truly makes the difference. So every state is allocated electoral votes on the basis of the number of congressional districts plus the two senators. So if a state has three electoral votes, there's one for the congressional district. So if, for instance, some of the smaller states in the upper Midwest will have three electoral votes, one for the House district, when the member represents the state at large within the House of Representatives, and then there are two senators. Uh, California, on the other hand, will have 50, I believe, some odd um, congressional districts plus the two senators. So every state is awarded electoral votes in the same way. Then once in, uh, once voting for president, states can determine how to allocate those votes so, or how those votes go to president. Now, the electors are chosen by popular election and the winner-take-all system also takes hold. Usually chosen by the state at first that has now changed so that they're uh, elected in statewide elections. And so if on your ballot, if you look in either small font on the front or the back, you're ultimately, while you are voting for in this election, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or one of the third party candidates, as well as their respective vice presidential candidates, you're ultimately voting for the electors. And so on the ballot, you'll see electors for, and then you'll vote for one of the candidates, but ultimately your vote's going to the electors who will then go in front of the House of Representatives and vote for the president and vice president. With most states following the winner-take-all approach, it is also possible for a candidate to win the electoral vote, but lose the nationwide popular vote. So winner-take-all system means that the candidate who wins the most popular votes within a state wins all of that state's electors. So if a state has three electoral votes and the the winner is, say it's 49, 49% to 48%, and then three some odd percent for third party, third party candidates or write-ins, and the candidate who receives 49% of the vote takes all three of those electoral votes. So you don't necessarily need to meet a threshold necessarily of receiving over 50% of the vote, just the candidate just has to receive the greatest number of popular votes. Just like any system in America, there were also many points of evolution especially with the rise of political parties, which wasn't anticipated. One of the largest ones would have been the 12th Amendment, which meant, so previously, as I stated at the beginning, when the electors met to vote for president and vice president, whoever received the greatest number of votes would have been president, and the second number would have been vice president, which is quite a unique concept today, considering we have political parties, which are going to change. But the 12th Amendment said that um, 
each elector gives one vote for president and one vote for vice president rather than voting on the group of candidates overall. A different evolution or a new evolution has been the introduction of political parties in which case now candidates come bundled effectively as president and vice presidential uh, nominees from the political parties. So now you're sort of voting, you sort of know who the president and vice president will be rather than pre prior to uh, earlier in the, the the history of the United States, in which case right, the elector is sort of was more of a, a popularity contest almost. And you could have two people with opposing viewpoints potentially um, being president and vice president, whereas today it's much more likely or almost impossible for there to be a, a democratic president and a Republican vice president. There have also been many effects of the system, including discouraging third and independent parties, encouraging candidates to focus on specific states and benefiting groups that are geographically concentrated. Ultimately now, depending on the makeup of a state, presidential candidates are much more likely to focus on specific states because they're seeking those electoral votes. So for example, in the current election uh, process, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are much more likely to campaign in the state of Pennsylvania than they are in the state of New York, even though those states share a common border. And that's because Pennsylvania's battleground state, both of the candidates have a chance of winning the state overall, whereas with New York, there's much less of a chance. And many political scientists have likened this type of strategy to a state-by-state -state contest. Uh, one thing a lot of people may not be aware of with the Electoral College is that it tends to benefit groups that are geographically concentrated. So for example, maybe Jewish voters in the Northeast and Hispanic voters in certain Southern and Southwestern states and, but also it's not just sort of racial and ethnic groups, but it can also be economic groups like labor unions and farmers. So for example, in states like Ohio and Michigan with large labor population, labor union populations, a candidate must, must sort of appeal to those groups of people in order to do better in the state. Whereas if there was just a nationwide popular election, some of those important differences within the state sort of get uh, shouldn't say wiped away, but necessarily aren't as prominent if it's a nationwide election. Right. Okay. Um, can states also agree among themselves to give their electoral votes to the national popular vote winner? So that is possible, but as long as the idea and the, the institution of the electoral college remains, so you see this, there's a national popular vote bill movement occurring right now, in which case states are pledging that whatever or whichever candidate receives the popular vote, that mm -hmm. candidate will be awarded that state's electoral votes. Uh, but again, that's assuming, right, that they're not assuming, but that's stating that the electoral college is still in effect. If people would like to, or if states or if organizations would like to remove the electoral college, that would require a constitutional amendment, which would be very difficult to accomplish. Um, but we do see certain states moving in the direction of awarding their popular, awarding their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. In terms of reform, many ideas have also been proposed, including the popular vote, the district plan, the proportional plan, and the direct popular election. Uh, several different ones. There's, there's the idea that states would move to the same structure an organization as both Maine and Nebraska. So they would award their votes proportionally. So the winner of sort of the, the congressional districts. Um, 
there's also the idea that there would be an automatic plan. So that's similar to the national popular vote plan. So every electoral college vote would go for the winner of the popular election, uh, which would sort of nullify the electoral college in some sense, but it would still exist. There's the district plan in which each um, district would award one electoral vote and then there'd be two extra votes overall for the winner of the popular vote in the state. And again, this would not require a constitutional amendment. And then, of course, there's the direct popular election, which would require a constitutional amendment, though uh, there are proponents to this because it's, it is um, proponents of this idea because it's more simple, right? It's the, the winner who receives the most votes overall then becomes president rather than having the electoral college decide. Now that we know more about the origins and mechanics of the Electoral College, let's hear from someone who opposes the system itself. My name is Janine Amaker. I currently live in Bellingham, Washington, uh, right near the Canadian border. Uh, and I'm an assistant professor of chemistry at Western Washington University. Uh, specifically, I'm a biochemist and a structural biologist. Now jumping into the conversation about the Electoral College, when did you first learn about the Electoral College? I know it's probably a while ago, but <laughs> if you were to go back to that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is actually a really good question. Uh, I had never really thought about uh, when I first heard about the Electoral College and uh, in reflecting on it, I realized uh, I sort of always knew about it, right? So about when I was old enough to start learning about and understanding elections and voting. Uh, so a long time before I was actually able to vote myself. So I would say that, you know, probably late elementary school. Got it. And would you call yourself a critic of the Electoral College? And then why or why not? Yes, I am a very strong critic of the Electoral College. We only focus on a handful of state wing states, and, and that didn't really seem fair to me. And while I still agree with that, what I would say is that uh, my criticisms of the Electoral College have actually even gotten uh, even deeper, uh, particularly recently in the last you know year or two when I've started to, uh, try to do some uh, personal anti-racist work, something I think is very important for all people in this country, particularly progressive middle-class people of which I'm, I'm one of them. Um, and so I think we'll, we'll sort of get more into that, but, but sort of this inherent racism that's at the root of the Electoral College. So how do you think the Electoral College affects democracy, if it does at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this is a really great question. I think uh, because of that system, I think the Electoral College is inherently undemocratic. Uh, and the reason for that is because depending solely on where you live, your vote counts more or less. And, and I'm you know, saying where you live based on which state you reside in. Uh, so I did a quick Google search, you know, not hard to do. Um, and it, Google told me that the definition of democracy from the Oxford Dictionary uh, is, quote, a system of government by the whole population or all the eligible members of a state, typically through elected representatives. And so I think once you start to weigh uh, the votes of different people in that population, I think you're inherently undemocratic by that definition. That's how I interpret it. I think there are additional issues in here, uh, particularly the second part of the eligible members of the state. Uh, and I think we can talk more about, you know, the, the different legislature that goes into uh, trying to make people either get a vote or not. 
which is also undemocratic. Um, but, you know, at the root, I would say that if you take the vote of a state and whittle it down to just a few representative votes, uh, then you're not taking into account the whole population and, and that that is inherently undemocratic. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that because in a way, all of the state's electors go to one candidate and the presidential race most often comes down to several electors in one or two key states, like the swing states. So they hold like an outsized power, I would say, in the process relative to their population. So kind of based on that, do you think that every voter should be counted the same? Yeah, so so you know, I'm really going to argue that I I I think they should. I think the popular vote should should be what we we use to elect the president of the United States. Uh, particularly now, when technology tells us that we can accurately count every vote equally, I think that's a, a loaded opinion. I think within that there are subsystems where you have to think about access to vote. Um, I live in the state of Washington. I grew up in the state of Oregon. Both states are by default a vote by mail state. I would strongly argue that that's the way that, that everybody should vote. I think it's secure. Personally, I think it's wonderful. Um, I lived in New Hampshire when I was in grad school. And uh, going to the polls, I actually felt like a much less informed voter uh, than I do currently in Washington, where I can sit down with my voter pamphlet. I have, you know, the internet. I have all these resources available to me when I vote. I can take my time. I don't have to leave work, anything. Uh, you know, thinking about should everyone's vote count? Yes, but also everyone should have the same access to the vote. And just to follow up on, on what you said, I, uh, a friend of mine uh, was living in San Diego and, and recently became a professor in, in North Carolina. And he calculated and posted on social media that his vote now counted six times more just because he had made this move professionally from California to North Carolina, which I find quite insane. Yeah, it's not a balance of power, you know, it's a very, it's a big imbalance of power. And I just don't think that that's fair. So yeah. it has now been more than two centuries after the system was designed. And at the time it empowered Southern white voters. However, the system continues to do just that. So what do you know about the underlying racism behind the Electoral College? So a lot of commentators today, they kind of downplay the extent to which race and slavery contributed to the framers' creation of the Electoral College. And in effect, it's kind of been whitewashing history, which we've seen in, you know, in our education, in the news, and of the considerations that went into, like, the framers' decision for the Electoral College. Race and slavery were kind of at the forefront. For example, the South's like baked in advantages, um, the bonus electoral votes it received for maintaining slaves, all while not even allowing those slaves to vote, that kind of made the difference in the election outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So so thank you for, for providing that. Yeah, I would say that I did not realize, again, you know, as sort of a white privileged um you know, academic, which uh, again, this is very sad, but but this is what we see in our society, unfortunately. Um, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that's why the Electoral College was started. And I, I follow an Instagram account called So You Want to Talk About, which is excellent. And, and they did something on the Electoral College. And yeah, I didn't realize that it was these, uh, you know, white slave owners in the South that were realized that were realizing that their voices were not being properly sort of quote unquote heard. Uh, in Washington, D.C., and that was because just numbers of population-wise. Uh, and so they argued 
to have their slaves uh, count towards the population, even though, of course, at that time, sort of as you allude to, uh, slaves were not considered citizens. You couldn't be a citizen in the United States unless you were, you know, this white race, which is which was made up. Um, and so, so the slaves counted as three-fifths of a person towards the population, which then boosted uh, the ability of, of these Southern um, slave owners to elect people and, and have, have legislature go their way. Um, so, so yes, so, so you know, the system is inherently racist and it's inherently um, tied into sort of the founding of this country, which was built on white supremacy in which our institutions, you know, continue to, to promote. Um, so I just finished this morning um, the excellent podcast Seeing White uh, on CNN Radio from out of Duke University and, and John Bewin and uh, Dr. Chenjerai Komanika of, of Rutgers are sort of the main forces of that series, um, that talk, and I highly recommend it to anyone. It's, it's from 2017, and I think they both continued doing work. Um, and something that I was reflecting on when, when you know, listening to these episodes and then thinking about your podcast on the Electoral College uh, is this idea that, you know, the Electoral College, the and, and, you know, this was the founding as well, to, to give the Southern states a, a, a more of a voice or a representation. Um, and the arguments now are, are similar, uh, although I would argue that it's shifted away from Southern states specifically and more towards just rural America in general. Um, so thinking as well about farmers in Nebraska and Iowa and Ohio, you know, places like that. And that is troubling and problematic because who owns land in the middle of our country? Uh, and again, you know, I, I reference people to seeing white and, and they have, you know, they really lay out this argument well, uh, which is that our country over the past 400 years has systematically uh, given land to white people and taken it away from black and, and indigenous people. Um, so in then making the argument that you know we need to let rural America have this voice. What you're really saying is we need to have white people who have uh, benefited from the oppression of other groups of people in this country, so that they own land and and you know this generational thing, uh, that they should have an oversized voice as well. So the electoral college is bad. <laughs> No, thank you so much for that. Yes, I definitely agree with that. It was interesting to hear like that take as well. So who did you vote for back in 2016? Um, as we know, the Electoral College played a big part in Trump's win back in 2016. And I guess, how did you feel about that aspect as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's probably not a surprise. I, I, I proudly voted for Hillary Clinton, um, just like I proudly voted for Barack Obama, and I proudly voted for Joe Biden this year. Um, and I, I didn't feel good about it. I, like a lot of other people, were watching, you know, the 538 website that had, they had like a little ticker, I think, <laughs> maybe it was the New York Times, yeah. uh, that showed the probability of Hillary Clinton winning, and then it sort of like, like went down <laughs> uh, and changed throughout the night. Um, I was a, a new mom at the time, so my husband was, was we were living in, in the Bay Area, I was a postdoc at UC Berkeley, and he was a postdoc at UCSF. Um, we just had a son in September, late September, and he was still at lab. And so I was home with my son watching, you know, the election night coverage. 
uh, and for whatever reason, he was in like a red onesie. <laughs> and at some point I like ripped off the runt onesie and I had like tears streaming down my face, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. so, and, and, and I would even say that, you know, my reaction was, was quite, muted, I would say, probably compared to a lot of other people. Um, and the reason for that is that, you know, I'm, I'm very well protected uh, in that I'm a, you know, white educated woman. Uh, I have a stable career. I, you know, I'm tenure track in, in academia. Um, I also live in progressive states. So at the time I was in California, now I'm in Washington. Um, so, you know, as far as how my direct life is, is going to be affected, um, by someone like Donald Trump, I would say that the biggest things for me are climate change because that affects everybody. Um, and then also the other thing I really worry about is um, gun legislation, you know, thinking about the safety of my, of my family. Um, and that's also something that sort of permeates. But as far as sort of other basic human rights that have been just, you know, stripped, stolen uh, from individual people, um, I think living in progressive states, you are a, a little bit um, buffered against that. And then in response to the winner of this year's election, what was your reaction? Yeah, so I'm really excited. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about uh, Joe Biden. I would say I'm, I'm probably even more excited about Kamala Harris, <laughs> um, which I think is yes. probably <laughs> by a lot of people. I, you know, I just think she is excellent and, and, and really wonderful. Um, I recently started reading uh, Barack Obama's uh, first presidential memoirs of Promised Land. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not even 20% into the book. It's, it's a behemoth, um, but I'm really enjoying that too. And so uh, just really getting some insight into progressive politics at this level, uh, mm -hmm. I think is really exciting. Um, and so, you know, I hope that this is something that, that Biden and, and Harris can, can continue for us. For sure. Um, and one of my last questions for you is, so do you want to abolish the Electoral College, kind of getting back to the Electoral College theme? So yes, the answer to your question is yes. I want the Electoral College abolished. I, you know, I hope this happens in my lifetime. I'm 35 years old now. Uh, if it doesn't, I, that would be very sad, but, but, I, but we are going in that direction. There are states forming a coalition and I think it will eventually happen. It's gonna be really hard though. I'm gonna be honest with you. It is really hard to pass a constitutional amendment. I'm not naive about it. For a very specific reason, which is that the GOP is extremely strategic. I think they do a much better job of this than the Democratic Party, which is that they are able to uh, strategize and look decades ahead. They did. They've done this with gerrymandering. Um, they've done it with a, a you know a number of voter suppression policies, um, where they sort of chip away a little bit uh, at the power of others um, to elevate themselves. Uh, and because of that, they're able to sort of keep these institutions in place. And one of the things that currently, in, in my view, again, this is a personal opinion, that is really elevating them is the Senate. So the Senate is not representative of the population of the United States. In fact, you know, it, it's really been really scary to see how much power Mitch McConnell has even though at one point his approval rating in Kentucky was like 18% or something like this. Mm -hmm. um, still there, yeah. Yeah, I found that, uh, I found a Reddit post from 2014, but there's other sources with similar numbers um, that say that 60 senators, so those in the 30 least populous states, represent just 24% of the U.S. population. So this was something that was really heavily discussed uh, during the confirmation hearings of Brent 
Kavanaugh, and I think again, probably recently with Amy Coney Barrett, uh, which is that, uh, you know, these senators who are confirming these conservative Supreme Court justices are representing, you know, just 44% of the U.S., and that was an Atlantic article from 2018, and, and I, can, I can share the link with you if you want. Um, so this idea that the way the Senate was built um, is sort of inherently inequitable. Uh, but yet the president, so Biden's going to run into this, President Obama definitely ran into this, uh, that they're able to just really stop all these progressive policies and confirmations. I mean, just this week that we're already hearing from GOP senators about how, you know, progressive people that, that Biden's going to elect to his cabinet are, they're not going to confirm. Or, you know, Amy Coney Barrett should never have been confirmed uh, a couple of weeks before the election. Brett Kavanaugh should never have been confirmed. It should have been Merrick Garland, right? Amy Coney Barrett shouldn't even ever have become a federal judge, but they blocked one of Obama's mm -hmm. uh, progressive. So it's just really scary because the way to dismantle the white supremacist society is not at the individual level. It's, it's institutionalized. And so if the lawmakers and policymakers are promoting uh, these inequitable, you know, just inherently inequitable ways of thinking, like the Electoral College, right? How are you going to get rid of the Electoral College if the Senate won't get rid of it, if the GOP won't get rid of it, right? That's going to be really challenging. Um, and so that, I think, is very scary. And I hope that people much, much smarter than I can figure out how to do this and dismantle this. And everyone should vote if in the, you know, who can in the Georgia Senate runoff elections. But the fact that it is that hard to get the Senate to be democratic, and it's going to continue to be like this, uh, is, is really scary. Another thing I wanted to add, sort of getting rid of the Electoral College, is one of the arguments I've seen is that the, the reason for the Electoral College uh, is that, you know, you don't want to give too much power to the cities. That's one of these arguments. You know, if you look at a map of what's blue and what's red in this country, you see that the blue uh, is actually, you know, by land area is much, much smaller than the red. And so the idea is that, you know, if, if you go to a popular vote, you're, you're hyping up these academic intellectuals and cities uh, and forgetting most of America or whatever. And again, we can talk about race relations and how that's uh, contributed to who lives in cities, but, but that's a different conversation. So anyway, so in preparing for this, I looked up the top 50 most populated cities in the United States. Uh, and it starts with New York City, it goes to Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, Phoenix, Philadelphia, etc. If I added up the population of the top 10 cities, then that was, you know, 26,418,000, etc. That is only 7% of the US population in 2019, which was estimated to be 328.2 million. So 7% living in the 10, the 10 most populated cities. If I added up the top 20 cities, mm -hmm. then it's 10.7%. So again, it's a very, very small percentage of the overall population. And I will say that, so DC is the num was the number 20 uh, most populated city that, that I found. Mm -hmm. um, it had 700,000 people. If I assume that the top you know, the rest of the top 50 cities, so the next 30 cities down, each have a million people, which is wrong because DC only has 700,000. 
then that would be 65 million people total living in the top 50 most populated cities in America. And that is only 20% of, of the total. So to argue that the popular vote is not reflective of the people living in America because of city dwellers is just factually wrong. Uh, but this was very interesting to me because I had heard that argument, but I had never crunched the numbers. And just to see, and, and I'll also point out that most, so let's see, Dallas, uh, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, those are all within the top 11 most populated cities in the U.S. Uh, that's in Texas. Texas went red this election. Uh, Fort Worth is, is number 13. So to argue that that the cities are this blue wave and that the whole country's popular vote doesn't make sense because then you're just giving unbalanced power to cities. I, I just think is wrong. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that's really interesting, like the num ca actually calculating the numbers of the cities because that is an argument I've heard too. And going back to how you said it could be hard because of you know the Senate and like them blocking everything, I feel like it's going to be hard for Biden to pass a lot of things if we... Democrats don't get control of the Senate. So yeah, that's definitely a big factor in that aspect as well. Yeah, I agree, unfortunately. Based on that, um, is there anything else you would like to add in terms of like ideas for reform or anything really on the Electoral College? Yes, yeah, so I think that that's a great question. So, you know, I, I would say that as far as, you know, my ideas for reform, I, I am not an expert in this. And, and, you know, as a sort of PhD trained scientist, I, I definitely want to defer to the experts. And so, um, you know, and I know that my, my viewpoints are biased towards sort of liberal progressive ideas. Um, I argue basic human rights, but but that's fine in science, but that's fine. Um, so so I, I don't have, you know, sort of my own personal idea of, of what the reform should be. And I don't think I should, because um, I'm not an expert on these systems. Uh, what I would like to see is for, you know, the, the many, many people who are doing this work and who are doing really, really great work and really looking at it from, um, you know, ethical and, and scientific standpoints. I would just like to see them sort of, you know, listen to and able to, to really make the change. Um, but again, it's, it's hard and I think it takes a long time. And, you know, the, the, the people in power, you know, particularly the GOP are, are, are gonna stop them and they have to. I mean, you know, if you look at the last few elections uh, and you look at, you know, in the last 20 years, we've had three presidential elections where a Republican has won and in only one of those, this was George W. Bush's second term, did he win the popular vote? So if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a GOP lawmaker, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power, and unfortunately I have a lot of power, to, to not move to the popular vote. Um, so that, that's very scary to me. That's scary thinking about, you know, the world that my children are growing up in. And I just, I hope that, that people better positioned and, and smarter than me can, can sort of make it more fair. Got it. And I just have one more question. Mm -hmm. I know you kind of spoke about hope. Are you hopeful at all um, about the future of our elections? So let's like say it's 2024. 20, um, are you hopeful for that election? And the way that the system is? Yeah, I, that's a great question. So, you know, 2024, I, I, I don't know that, I, I think we'll still be dealing with the Electoral College then, definitely. Um, yeah, I've heard recently that President Trump's 
uh, rhetoric has changed from election fraud to see you in four years, which I hope he's in a federal prison somewhere by then, as he should be. Um, but if not, that's, that's scary. It's really hard. I, I think you have to have hope. And this is true for sort of all kind of anti-racist movements. Um, but, but that it really does take a lot of time and that, you know, the work of the people, you know, who are really doing this great work, uh, you know, we just want to try to help them as, as much as we can. So I'm pretty scared for 2024 and 2028 and 2032. Uh, and in thinking about what our world would be like today and what our country would be like today if Hillary Clinton had won and, and not Donald Trump is, is a sad place and a dark place to go. So you just gotta kinda take it one day at a time, I guess. <laughs> Thankfully this year, the winner of the popular vote was also the winner of the presidential election. Now, President-elect Joe Biden. Here's the announcement of Biden saying he was on track for what would turn into a win. We're going to win this race. We're on track to over 300 electoral votes, electoral college votes. And look at the national numbers. We're going to win this race with a clear majority of the nation behind us. We've gotten over 74 million votes but we were lucky this year. In my opinion, the Electoral College should definitely be abolished. However, the likeliness of that is very little to none. So instead, it should be reformed. There are racist origins attached to the Electoral College because many of the Constitution's framers were white, wealthy slave owners. So honestly, what do you expect? Since enslaved people were considered property, Southern plantations were smaller than northern states, meaning less power in a popular vote election. If we want to restore true democracy in the United States, a great start would be having a better way to elect the president of the United States. We're one of the only countries who does not use popular vote. So when are we going to start? A social solution to this would be pushing for reform, pushing for bills, trying to get that amended. Because there's only one way to restore democracy, and it's starting with the direct election of the President of the United States. Thank you for joining The Social Solution with Maya Brown. And thank you, Samuel and Janine, for joining me today. Make sure you listen to the next episode. This is Maya Brown, and remember that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. <laughs>